Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, and welcome back to the Sassy Speculum. Today we're talking about orgasms, the science, the physiology, the research, and the truth. Because no female orgasm happens within a matter of seconds of starting out, this is going to be a slow burner, and we'll take our time getting to the finish line. That doesn't mean that you won't enjoy yourself along the way, and you're going to learn things about your body and yourself that you didn't know before, just like an orgasm. I want to start off by giving a huge thank you to everyone who listened to episode one and to those of you who sent me feedback, shared with me things that you learned and were excited about learning, and shared how much you enjoyed yourself. It really, really means a lot to me that all of you are here, and I cannot thank you guys enough. On top of thanking you, I'm actually going to ask you guys a favor. Sending me texts and Instagram messages is amazing, and that does such an excellent job of boosting my ego. And if you want to boost this podcast and help it to reach more people, would you please leave a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you're using? That will help to get this podcast further into the community and out into the world. And you can also continue sending me texts if you want, because who doesn't love a little extra ego boost? And I really, really do love hearing about what you liked or didn't like and what you learned throughout the episode. So please keep sharing, but also share with the world if you wouldn't mind. And speaking of last week's episode, I referenced different aspects of it quite a few times in this week's podcast. So I'd recommend giving that one a listen before this one if you haven't already. Not totally necessary, but you might learn a little bit more with that context. I've been asked by many of you if I plan to continue this podcast after my community ed hours are finished and maybe even after graduation and as a doctor. The answer to the first part is, well, after these first two episodes, I've technically fulfilled my community ed requirements because of how many research hours I've put into these two episodes. And I do plan to continue on because it's been really, really fun so far. And I've had such a great response from many of you. And I want to continue learning along with you guys. In terms of how long I will continue this podcast, whether it will last throughout the year, past graduation, into being a doctor. Well, as I said on episode one, that's entirely dependent on you guys. I need your continued support, encouragement, and ideas about further topics. Because as of right now, I don't have enough ideas to carry this out for longer than a few months. I will do some research on how to create an anonymous forum for people to ask questions or submit their ideas if that's preferred to openly messaging me. And if you don't care about anonymity, feel free to message me on Instagram or TikTok at Sassy Speculum or shoot me an email at sassyspeculum at gmail.com. So enough logistics, let's get to why you guys are actually here. So last week we started with hymens and virginity because that's where everyone starts at one time or another. And now we're making a colossal leap to the big O. We'll discuss what an orgasm actually is, what it isn't, how you know if you've had one, the different kinds of orgasms, and more. And first, in order to fully understand these things, we have to talk about something called non-concordance. Non-concordance is the simultaneous physical manifestation, or lack thereof, of a mental and emotional state of arousal, aka your physical body and genital responses don't always match your brain's version of arousal. We are taught from a very young age through porn, novels, and even in sex ed that genital response and feelings of arousal are the same thing. When you see something sex-related and you feel warm and tingly down south, we are taught to believe that you are sexually aroused by that thing, when in reality, this is entirely untrue. I already know that I'm going to make a lot of heterosexual men pretty mad in this episode, and y'all might want to come at me calling me a liar, but wait until you hear about all of the research before you do. In one 2009 study, 20 men and 20 women were brought into a lab individually. The men placed a strain gauge on their peen, which is exactly what it sounds like, 
And the woman placed a photoplethysmograph. I can't even tell you how many times I've tried to say that word and sound like the sophisticated lady that I am. And I'm proud to say that I've continued to fail in that regard. But essentially, it's a tiny flashlight that goes up the vagina and it measures genital blood flow by bouncing light off the vaginal walls. Each participant was also given a little dial that could indicate how aroused they perceived that they were throughout the experiment. The research then showed the participants many different types of porn, porn involving heterosexual couples, homosexual couples, violence, romanticism, naked people walking, naked people exercising, family dynamics, and even bonobo monkeys boning. When researchers compared the arousal dial and the penis and vagina devices, they discovered the correlation between genital and subjective sexual arousal is much larger in men than in women. When men see something that is sex-related, there is a 50% overlap between his genital response and his subjective arousal. That is a pretty damn predictive relationship between what his penis is telling him and what his brain is telling him. For all my ladies listening out there, just take a second to guess what that percentage is for women. In this study, they found a 10% overlap between what a woman's genitals were saying and how aroused she felt by what she was looking at. 10%. Is that higher or lower than you were expecting? I would love to know. Unlike the men, there was no predictive relationship between how a woman feels and how her genitals respond. It didn't matter what type of porn she was exposed to or what her preferences were. This is called arousal nonconcordance. For the men, their minds and genitals were generally in agreement. If they claimed to be heterosexual, they were both aroused mentally and arisen physically by heterosexual and lesbian porn, as well as watching masturbating and exercising nude women. They were unmoved by men-only porn, and homosexual men were aroused in the opposite categorical pattern. Everything was different for women. No matter their self-proclaimed sexual orientation, they were genitally aroused by men-on-men, women-on-women, and women-on-men porn. They were more genitally aroused watching a nude exercising woman than a nude chiseled man walking down a beach. However, women, especially straight women, were in complete non-concordance with their genital and mental arousal, as the arousal dial and the plethysmograph weren't in accordance at all. During lesbian porn, heterosexual women reported less excitement than their vaginas showed, and watching heterosexual porn, they reported much more excitement than their vaginas indicated. Lesbian women were concordant when watching women-on-women porn, but when watching heterosexual porn, they reported less arousal than their vaginas showed. So what does this mean? Does it mean that all women are liars and don't actually know what their sexual interests are, or that they've been incorrect about their sexual orientation their whole lives? No, it means non-concordance is a thing, and just because your body says one thing does not mean that your mind agrees. As discussed in last week's episode, the vagina becoming lubricated is an autonomic process caused by vasocongestion. Blood is sent to the vagina, which engorges the tissue, causing fluid to seep through the vaginal walls, becoming lubricated. This is an entirely automatic and autonomic process. The genitals look at something and say, that is sex-related. But it's the brain and the person who owns that brain that says, that turns me on, I like this, give me more. The genitals alone have no idea if the situation is actually enticing. Just like if you're hungry, your stomach will grumble, You could be looking at a moldy piece of bread and your stomach will still grumble. Your stomach doesn't visually know the difference between green moldy bread and brown bread. It just knows that this is food and I am hungry. Your stomach has increased blood flow and your hunger hormones are telling you to eat. But your brain is telling you, um, no, this looks absolutely disgusting. I don't want to eat this. This is the key to female sexuality. You have to want it. You have to desire it. 
Women need so much more than just blood flow to an area to be interested in it. This is why the female version of Viagra has failed and no one has been able to come up with an alternative. Viagra or other erectile dysfunction medications work by increasing blood flow to the corpus cavernosum of the penis. As we've just learned, what happens when you increase blood flow to the vagina without any sexual stimulation or desire present? Literally nothing. Women need desire to be actually sexually aroused. Now, I don't want anyone to think, crap, does this mean I don't desire my partner? Or on the flip side, my partner never wants to have sex with me. Does this mean that they don't desire or want me? Absolutely not. Because for women, everything just has to be way more complicated than necessary. For both men and women, sexual responses are a set of on and off switches, with each switch associated with a different input. These inputs include genital sensations, relationship satisfaction, life stressors, the temperature of the room, etc., etc. Lots of different things can either throw an on switch or an off switch. Men and women have the same switches, but the levels of sensitivity are tuned very, very differently. While just a tiny bit of genital stimulation can throw the on switch for men, just the tiniest bit of stress in a woman's life can throw the off switch for women. For men, the strongest input that he receives is from his body, but for women, the strongest input that she receives is from life. Life hits a woman's metaphorical sex breaks all the time. If you're the partner, pay attention to the things that hit your partner's breaks. Once those get turned off, the accelerator will take over. And if you're the woman who is constantly riding their brakes, <coughs> guilty, then know that your body is healthy and normal. Even if it defies conventional thought, this conventional thought is incredibly inaccurate and hasn't been backed by science. But what I'm about to say has been backed by science. You are normal. There is nothing wrong with you and you are not broken. You are healthy, functional, and whole. Going back to episode one, where I talk about homologous organs and that males and females are really just all the same parts organized in different ways, so is sexuality. Sexuality is a relationship between the peripheral and the central systems, the genitals and the brain. These are two entirely separate but very connected systems. And these systems operate in a very individualistic manner, differing from person to person and in different contexts. In the incredible book by Emily Nagoski, she gives the following analogy. Imagine the brain and vagina are friends on vacation together. They're hungry, and they're walking down the street looking for somewhere to eat dinner. The genitals will notice any restaurant that they pass. It doesn't matter the cuisine or the look of the restaurant. All the genitals know is, this is a restaurant, and we could eat here. The genitals don't care where they eat, just that they get some food. The brain, on the other hand, is recognizing that this place isn't clean enough, or I don't feel like Thai food tonight. The brain is assessing contextual factors and decides on its own if it wants to give a restaurant a shot. The brain and vag pass a museum, and the brain says, I heard about a great cafe in this museum. Let's try it out. But the vagina says, this isn't a restaurant. But the brain has so much more information than the genitals have. So they follow the brain into the museum, and the genitals see the restaurant inside the museum and says, oh, we could eat here. And the brain agrees. This restaurant is both relevant and appealing. However... A lesbian may only be looking for diners, let's say. They only want to eat at a diner, and their genitals only recognize diners as restaurants. Once they find a diner, the brain says, oh, I love diners, let's eat here. And the genitals agree that this is a diner, and we could eat here. Also known as, we're all made of the same parts, we're just organized in different ways, and this relationship between the brain and the genitals follows the same principle. 
There are three levels of emotions connected to sexual stimulation. There's the involuntary physiological response. This includes increases in heart rate, breathing rate, your pupils dilate, and you start to sweat. Then there's the involuntary expressive response. This is shown through body language, facial expression, one's posture. And then the last level is subjective experience of a feeling. Men are most connected to the first and third levels. They will feel an increase in heart rate and how fast they are breathing and feel subjectively turned on. Women have more of a connection with the second and third levels. They could feel an increase in heart rate, have dilated pupils, and breathe faster, and have absolutely no arousal. But if they are aroused, they will show it through body language and facial expression. Anyone who knows me knows that if I'm not into something or someone, I will make this very, very clear on my face. I've had multiple people tell me throughout my life to check my face in situations because sometimes I just let too much show through my face, And I guess I am the quintessential example of female sexuality. (laughs) Joke. Um, I'm really just good with my mouth, um, face. So there are three non-concordance myths that we're going to debunk together. And I guarantee that this first one is going to have every heterosexual male confusedly staring at their steering wheel or bedroom ceiling or wherever it is that they happen to be listening to this podcast. Here's the first myth. That a genital response indicates desire. Just because a woman feels wet doesn't mean that they're into what's going on. As we've covered extensively over the past 13 minutes, the vagina lubricating has absolutely nothing to do with desire. It only means that there's more blood flow to the area from an autonomic process. So you may be asking, where did this idea come from if it's so baseless? In one word, patriarchy. Men are viewed once again as the default, the normal. Because as discussed earlier, when a man is aroused, there's a 50-50 shot that his penis is also aroused. So this theory has just been adopted for women as well. And when women happen to differ from this male default, they are labeled as broken or defective. But I would like to take us all back to middle school. I know this was a terrible time for every human, so don't worry, we'll only be here shortly. But do you remember when boys would randomly get erections? They could be sitting in class, we'd be talking about World War II, and suddenly they'd be pitching a tent. Or their pants were just a tad too tight while they were waiting for the bus, and they rubbed their peen in just the right way, and it was suddenly flagging down the bus on its own. Were they turned on? Typically, no. This was their body's reaction to fluctuating hormones, puberty as a whole, and just overall the body insanity that it is to be a teenage boy. But guess what? This body insanity is what women deal with throughout their entire lives. Congrats, men. You get a year or two of uncomfortability and your body not listening to your brain. We get our whole lives. Just because a vagina feels moist doesn't mean the vagina owner is mentally into what's going on or to you in general. Just like we discussed last week, clitoris size has nothing to do with anything. And blood flow to the genitals doesn't say anything about women want or like, it just shows that they've been exposed to something that their genitals can tell are sex-related. The second myth, and it kind of goes hand-in-hand with that first one, is that genital response equals pleasure. In order to describe what I mean by this, I'm going to relay one of the very first sexy scenes from Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this book and or movie, Anastasia, or Anna, A naive college student who gets into a BDSM relationship with Christian Grey. The relationship is mostly consensual, especially as he makes her sign a waiver, but Anna doesn't really know what she's getting herself into for the majority of the story. So in the first spanking scene, 
She consents to the spanking and then absolutely hates it. She screams in pain. She tries to move away. And there's not a single word depicting that she's enjoying herself. After the spanking, Gray puts his fingers into her vagina and says, Feel this? See how much your body likes this? You're just soaking for me. And because we've been trained to believe other people's opinions of our body more than our own experiences, Anna believes him and forgets that she had originally felt demeaned, debased, and abused. Of course, there are women and men out there who enjoy feeling debased and abused, but the entire plot of the story is that Anna isn't one of those women. Women have been socially programmed to not actually feel comfortable admitting what they're into or not into, and they believe that their vagina is the one doing the talking. Going back to our previous analogy, wetness or lubrication is your genitals way of telling you that this is a restaurant, but you don't necessarily want to eat there. Becoming lubed up is an automatic response to increased blood flow, and automatic responses are just that. They're automatic. There's no cognitive thought that goes into that process. Just like when a doctor hits your patellar tendon with that little hammer and your leg kicks out. Do you actually want to kick your doctor? Or was this an automatic response that your body performed without thinking about it? This trope about you said no, but your body said yes is absolute bullshit. No desire, pleasure, or consent is necessary for a genital response. And women should feel comfortable knowing that their experience trumps physiology every single time. When that shitty politician, Todd Atkin, who has very unfortunately since died, thank God, said in the 2012 Senate election that he's heard from doctors that legitimate rape victims rarely get pregnant because the body has a way of shutting down. Besides the absolute cockamamie that this comment is, it further perpetuates the idea that physiology can prove whether someone is enjoying something sexual or not. As sex researcher Meredith Chiver says, gentle response is not consent, and let's go one step further and say that neither is pregnancy. The third and final myth about non-concordance is that non-concordance is a problem, when in reality it's just life. There has been a ton of research saying that non-concordance is connected to sexual dysfunction. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news to these researchers, but there's one thing that every single researcher should know. That correlation does not equal causation. For example, in the UK, people tend to spend more money in stores when it's cold out and less when it's hot out. Does this mean that cold weather causes frenzied high spending? Non-concordance isn't causing sexual dysfunction, and sexual dysfunction isn't causing non-concordance. The theme of this podcast is context is key. Those little on and off switches are incredibly sensitive to context, and arousal is entirely in the brain. As I said earlier, what turns him on is any sexual stimulation, but what turns her off is any life stressor. To all the men out there listening, I know I've snagged a few of you under this lady health podcast realm. Here's a tip. It's not about eroticism or how sexy you can be. It's about getting rid of life stressors. Help to turn off her brakes and you've got yourself a car ready to go. Listen to your partner's words and really understand where they're coming from. And ladies, I want you to hear this at the very bottom of your heart. No matter the situation, you are healthy, you are functional, and you are whole. You are not broken, and you are not crazy. I promise I'm getting to orgasm soon, but since this is a fact-based podcast, it wouldn't be appropriate to rush there without taking my time with a few ups and downs. So the next thing that we're going to talk about is desire. 
We touched on this a bit earlier, but let's dive deeper because it will help us to understand a bit more about orgasms and non-concordance in general. Back to today's theme, desire is pleasure in context. Everything about female sexuality is context-dependent. Pleasure actually comes before desire. It's what has to come first in order for you to even feel desire, as desire emerges when pleasure is able to cross over that threshold. And just like those on and off switches, every person has different thresholds. Here's the kicker. It's most likely not your hormones. Unless you're pregnant, going through menopause, or some other huge hormonal shift, hormones are actually the least likely culprit to low desire. Historically, we have thought that testosterone was the hormone of desire, and if it was low, people would suffer from low libido issues. However, recent data has shown minimal to no significant correlations between testosterone levels and women's sexual desire. In a 2011 study, it was found that developmental history, psychiatric history, and psychosexual history all add significantly to the predictive capability of a woman having low desire. This proves our need to address psychological factors in treatment more than the physiological. This is beneficial to know in so many realms, but one solid piece is this little nugget of knowledge. If you experience low desire, you don't need to be fixed. There's nothing wrong with you. You just need more assistance in changing your context. This is a really, really important piece because when you believe that something is wrong with you, your sympathetic nervous system, your stress responses, increase. Guess what happens when you're stressed most of the time? That desire goes down even further. There are two different kinds of desire, spontaneous desire and responsive desire. Spontaneous desire is the standard narrative. That desire just appears randomly. But some people find that desire only starts to show up after something sexy happens. Rather than anticipating and looking forward to the end of the day when you can go home and take all your partner's clothes off, responsive desire happens after the clothes are already off and you're already together. Spontaneous desire happens in anticipation for pleasure, while response appears in response to pleasure, obviously. Spontaneous desire is the classic trope about how sexuality should be. Culture says that spontaneous desire is right because that's what men mostly experience and both partners getting turned on at the same time, called concordant arousal, is right because women are just like men, right? Wrong! And many people think that if they aren't spontaneously interested in their partner, that something's wrong with them and they're broken. But in reality, all desire is actually responsive. For my spontaneous peeps, you're imagining your partner with their clothes off, and that in and of itself is what your body is responding to, making you anticipate the next time that you can see them with their clothes off. It's all healthy, it's all normal, and not actively desiring sex without a reason to is completely normal and expected. It's common to think that something is wrong with you, especially if your own sexual desire is different or less than that of your partner. Just like women are trained to trust cultural messages more than their own body, we're also taught to trust our partner's opinions and ideas about our sexuality practices more than we trust our own. So how do you embrace your own sexuality and stop worrying about other people's? Embrace your responsive desire. Ask your partner to embrace it as well. Neither of you are better off than the other one, even if one conforms to the norm and the other doesn't. Everyone say with me now, it all depends on context. Teach your partner about responsive desire and your needs. Tell them what hits your brakes and what starts your accelerator. And with that, I think we've finally done enough with foreplay. Let's get to the big kahuna. 
So you may be wondering, what actually is an orgasm? It's actually super simple. An orgasm is a sudden involuntary release of sexual tension. Just like desire and pleasure, it isn't a genital response. It doesn't really matter what's going on in your genitals, but it's what happens in your brain that counts. There are some people who have had orgasms hands-free, simply through the power of thought. Orgasms also feel entirely different from person to person and depend on the mode of stimulation. They depend on whether you're with partner A or partner B or by yourself. They change depending on where you are in your menstrual cycle. And in case you haven't gotten the picture, every single orgasm is different from the last one because context. They can happen from clitoral, vaginal, thigh, anal, breast, ear, and or mental stimulation. They can happen when you're asleep, working out, or in entirely non-sexual situations. I remember there was an episode of Grey's Anatomy where a woman literally couldn't stop having orgasms, and it turns out the writers actually didn't make this condition up. It's called persistent sexual arousal syndrome, and thousands of women deal with it every day. Regardless of the time of day or situation, they are always on the brink of orgasm. While this may sound desirable or even kind of funny, women have explained it akin to being held prisoner. It's described as unwanted sexual sensations that actual orgasms don't help. They can actually make it worse. Dr. Erwin Goldstein, a professor at UCSD and one of the few researchers studying this condition, says it's constant throbbing, pulsing, or tingling without the person's sexual interest or desire. It's genital arousal 24-7, 365 days a year, and it makes it nearly impossible to concentrate and do everyday things. These women have to avoid anything that might vibrate or move as this will lead them into orgasmic release, like driving a car or exercise, for example. The pathophysiology of this condition is entirely unknown, but it's believed to not have anything to do with raging hormones. The strongest etiology we figured out is possibly a brain reflex gone awry, similar to seizure activity. For some women, it can be a lifelong condition, beginning even before puberty. For others, it can randomly come on throughout your life. Men can have a similar problem. It's called priapism, which is maintaining an erection for longer than four hours. And of course, this is considered a medical emergency in men. But when it comes to women, very, very few doctors have even heard of this condition. This condition is so bad that women have claimed they'd prefer to never have an orgasm again in their life than to suffer through one more day of these sensations. So if an orgasm is a spontaneous release of tension, what is actually happening and what is not actually happening? In 1957, William Masters and Virginia Johnson pioneered research into the understanding of the human sexual response, sexual dysfunction, and disorders through the direct observation of orgasms in a lab. They are most notably recognized for their four-stage model of sexual response, called the human sexual response cycle. Not only were they able to observe this four-stage model in all of their research participants, but they were able to figure out the differences between the male and the female responses. The four stages are as follows. Excitement, plateau, orgasmic, and refractory. In young males, they were able to reach excitement, aka a full boner, in three to five seconds of their libido being kindled, and older men took two to three times as long. In both young and older women, the excitement phase includes nipple erection, fuller breasts, and vaginal lubrication within 10 to 30 seconds of becoming aroused, with a lengthening of the vaginal canal in anticipation. In the plateau phase, the vagina moistens more, the labia minora changes color by getting darker because there's more blood flow, as we already know, and the clitoris tightens and retracts behind the hood. 
In men during the plateau phase, the penis stays erect, their testicles get larger and heavier, and they produce precum. During the orgasmic phase, men's heart rate and respiratory rates increase with a sensation of ejaculatory inevitability from the prostatic urethra prior to the seminal fluid passing through the penis. As many of us who have had sex with men know, they then enter the refractory phase where their peen deflates and they suddenly can't move or even consider anything sexy at all. And I just totally skipped over female orgasms. I guess it temporarily slipped my mind that a woman's pleasure matters too. So Masters and Johnson claimed that a female orgasm consisted of wave-like contractions in the uterus and outer one-third of the vagina, repeating four to eight times in 0.8 second intervals, which was equivalent to the male ejaculation contractions. The anterior vaginal wall also moves posteriorly and up, creating a tenting effect. Both males and females were found to have pelvic tissue contractions followed by the rectal sphincter moving in harmony. Dr. Alfred Kinsey, who oversaw Dr. Masters prior to him beginning this research, described orgasm as a sudden release which produces local spasms or more extensive or all-consuming convulsions. After Masters and Johnson finished their research, their definition of orgasm had changed to those few seconds during which the vasoconcentration and myotonia, which is a muscle constriction, developed from sexual stimuli are released. While Masters and Johnson were amazing pioneers in the sex research world, this theory of female orgasms has since been debunked. Researcher Nicole Prouse measured orgasms in a lab in the early 1980s and found that about half of the women who reported reaching orgasm didn't exhibit physiological signs of it. These women didn't have the vaginal or uterine contractions. Does that mean that these women were wrong and they weren't actually having an orgasm? No, it means that every body is different, no two orgasms are the same or produced in the same manner, and non-concordance. This is how we've arrived at the current definition of orgasm that is simply a spontaneous involuntary release of sexual attention. In 1985, researchers Levin and Wagner also performed a study looking at the female orgasm, and instead of just looking at vaginal contractions, they asked the participants to time and grade their orgasms on a five-point scale while they measured blood flow and contractions. They found that there was absolutely no correlation between blood flow, subjective gradings of the orgasm, how long it took for the women to orgasm, and the measured duration of the orgasm. So essentially, this brings us back to our very first topic, that desire, pleasure, and even orgasm happen in your head, not in your vagina. Crazy, right? Pleasure is predominantly a perception of a sensation, and perception is once again context-dependent. All orgasms are different. None are right or better or worse. Instead of trying to categorize all the different kinds and ways that one can orgasm, just remember that all orgasms are simply a sudden release of sexual tension, just generated in different ways. There are so many cultural and scientific goals of figuring out and labeling what kind of orgasms we could be having, but instead, just freaking enjoy the fact that your body has the capability to simply experience pleasure. Just like all vulvas are healthy, so are all orgasms, regardless of what stimulation generated them or how they feel. Value comes from not how it happened, but whether you liked it and wanted it. The only measure that really matters is how much you enjoyed it. Earlier, I mentioned how spontaneous and concordant arousals are considered the norm because that's what men experience. Well, let's talk a little P and V talk for a sec. Less than one-third of women are reliably orgasmic with vaginal penetration alone. Most women need some sort of clitoral stimulation. 
the question isn't actually why most women can't orgasm with just P and V, but why can some women? There are three theories of why some women are able to orgasm with just vaginal penetration. One, the penis stimulates through the front wall of the vagina, where the urethral sponge is located. This is the female version of the prostate and is what was originally considered the G-spot. Two, the vestibular bulbs, remember those were homologous to the corpus spongiosum of the penis, and they swell with blood during arousal. So the vestibular bulbs in some people can extend all the way from the head of the clitoris and then surround the mouth of the vagina. And three, anatomical variability and everyone's a little bit different. So where did this idea come from that the quote-unquote right way to orgasm is through vaginal sex? Once again, we have the patriarchy to thank for this, and of course, the father of shitty philosophy, Sigmund Freud, who claimed that vaginal orgasms are right, good, and normal, and clitoral orgasms are immature. I think that he's actually the immature one, and I'm pretty sure that we should just blame the continuation of the patriarchy on him. So if spontaneous and concordant desires are the right way to be aroused, because this is what men experience, women are expected to behave just like men in every single way, except for when it gets to the way we orgasm. Because as we discussed last week, the vagina isn't homologous to the penis, the clitoris is. If women are expected to act just like men, then shouldn't orgasming by means of our clitoris be considered normal? But thanks to the patriarchy, men benefit from P and V intercourse, and male pleasure is the default pleasure because female sexuality is basically just the light version of male sexuality. I'll leave you with just one more thought. Many women have distress about their orgasms. They worry about whether or not one will happen, that they're taking too long to get there, that their partner will get bored, and unfortunately, as we've discussed, most orgasmic problems come from too much stimulation of the brakes, which is exactly what worrying does. There's something called spectorating. It's the act of worrying about your body and sexual functioning while having sex. And I'm pretty sure that every single person is guilty of spectorating at some point or another, and instead of actually enjoying the sex and hopefully pleasurable encounter that you're having, you're worrying about the sex, and worry is the opposite of pleasure. Make pleasure your goal of sexual encounters, not orgasm. If you set pleasure as a goal, you're way more likely to enjoy yourself and will probably reach orgasm and be less frustrated overall. When you're engaging in a sexual encounter, all of your internal states like comfort, hunger, thirst, fatigue, loneliness, trust, they all interact on a very deep level and they influence one another. When one of those interferes with another one, they subtract from the experience. When one reinforces another, they add together. Pleasure happens when the entire collective begins working together and peak pleasure requires all of you. Thank you everyone for listening this far. I really, really appreciate all of the support. I promise to continue sharing more insight about the female body as long as you guys keep listening. So please send in questions and comments either on Instagram at sassyspeculum or emailing me at sassyspeculum at gmail.com. I would love more ideas to cover and I really, really want to know what you guys want me to talk about. So please, please, please send in ideas. And once again, thank you to everyone who has reached out to me personally, letting me know how much you enjoyed episode one. If you wouldn't mind leaving a rating and or review on whatever listening platform you're listening to this podcast on so that this podcast can reach even more people who want to learn about women's health, that would be amazing. 
I know this week I didn't include any personal funny stories, which I know people really enjoyed hearing about last week, but I felt kind of uncomfortable doing this as that would include people other than myself, and I didn't feel like that was appropriate. And at least at this point, I should really only be making fun of myself. But I'm also totally down for sharing more embarrassing stories about myself. And if you have embarrassing stories that you want me to share anonymously, of course, I would absolutely love that. Send them in. They'll be on the next episode. Also, for last week, I forgot to include a list of my sources and the research studies. So if that's something that you're interested in, I will be posting those along with this week's resources. So keep on the lookout if that's something that you're interested in. Thank you, every single one of you, for listening, for reaching out. It really, really means a lot. And it's been really a lot of fun connecting with people that I didn't even know knew my name. So that's really cool. Thank you guys so much. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.